Hello, I am Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands, England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is a podcast that explores ideas and research at the cutting edge of medicine, especially anything to do with blood. I aim to provide a platform to incredible people you probably haven't heard from before and share their work, ideas and opinions. We will take you beyond the guidelines and into the research behind them. And most importantly, into the sticky world of opinion and conjecture. You can subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform. And don't forget to leave a review, as it really helps others to find the show. If you would like to come on the podcast or know someone else who would be great, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. My guest on this episode is Genghis Akbulut, who will shortly be defending his PhD thesis at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. He's also the founder and head of Stem Cell Research University Maastricht, or SCRUM, and I had the pleasure of meeting him at a recent conference we both attended in the beautiful city of Maastricht. Genghis hails from London, but is a bit of a wanderer, incredibly interesting, and an all-round lovely guy. We discuss his work on vascular calcification, vitamin K, and talk about life in general. Enjoy! Hi Genghis, welcome to Don't Just Read the Guidelines, really nice to have you. Thank you very much, Rich. It's uh, really nice to be here and to have a chat with you. So it was really cool to meet you last month in Maastricht in Germany, which, uh, not in Germany, in the Netherlands, which is an absolutely beautiful city. Um, why you're, you're, You live in Maastricht and work in Maastricht. How, have you, how did you end up there? Because I understand you're a Londoner and an Arsenal fan, which I won't hold against you. Yeah, no, no. I mean, you know, we can't all be perfect. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been in Maastricht for, um, for four, four and a half years now, you know uh i i came here for for the phd opportunity so i'm a i'm a, a marie curie fellow which is uh one, or, or i was a marie curie fellow uh, which is one of these uh phd programs or, or or training courses even which are funded by the horizon 2020 initiative of the european union and as a as a core stipulation to it uh you have to you have to move so if there's a h2020 project offered in the netherlands a dutch home student is not allowed to take it it has to be accessible to anyone else in the world basically uh, apart from someone from that home student because one of the core ethoses behind the the Marie Curie fellowships is travel and connections within science and the scientific community mm-hmm. so I've okay. been in Maastricht now for four and a half years but actually I've spent over uh, uh, over a year in different um, different uh, universities different institutes uh, outside of the Netherlands as well where else yeah. did you go uh, so I've been in Krakow, Poland. I spent some time with uh, uh, with a nutraceutical company uh, called Natto Pharma. Uh, I went to uh, Uniklinikum Bonn uh, to, um, to to a laboratory in uh, the Institute of uh, Transfusion Medicine. Uh, I went to Uniklinikum Aachen, also in Germany, but that's in, in Aachen, which is not so far from Maastricht at the Institute of uh, Experimental Medicine and Systems Biology. And also I spent uh, some time at the University of Cambridge, at the Cambridge uh, Stem Cell Institute. So it's very nice to have quite like a broad, like uh, a broad degree of training, if you will, and, uh, and a nice, nice, nice interactions and quite variant during the PhD period. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what gave you the confidence to do that amount of traveling? Because that's quite unusual for, especially for someone who's British, actually. It's very, very unusual, and it's uh, it's very commendable. Well, 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 degree of the, um, the of the of the of the internships were, were were kind of like part of the program. 
it's actually like you, you, you with regards to the Marie Curie fellowships, you, you, these are always between multiple partner universities. That's how they how that's how the, the the funding is awarded and then travel is necessary. So within these within the, the the fellowship program, they have it designated already that okay, you're a home student of let's say Maastricht, but then you're going to go to Aachen for so many months in order to work in this laboratory, which is probably relevant to the to the project as it begins, as well as to this company to get some industrial experience, which is relevant. That's what that's what a traveling, you know, like. Uh, for, for me, there's always been like uh, it's always been been a uh, one of the interests behind getting into um, getting into academia as seemingly uh, one of the one of the, the, those 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 things that, that one of those jobs that you can have and a career you can embark on where where you can actually move around. You know, like so the idea of when I was like a teenager mm. being in London, and then the idea that I'm going to stay in London for the rest of my life and just be a sardine in the tube. You know. I enjoy London, you know, I love it. Uh, but I, I knew that there's more to the world and I wanted to, to, to kind of like spread my wings and see, see, what's, see what's happening. So, and now so, you, so even and before the PhD, like for example, I did my bachelor's in Aberdeen in, in Scotland, University okay. of Aberdeen, because that was pretty much the furthest away from, from, from home I could get without, and still be able to get a student loan, you know? Like that was, <laughs> <it>. <laughs> that was, that was it, like. And and now you're a bit older. Do you feel like it's it is a positive thing, or is it is it annoying having to move? So I, I guess it's the, the general general philosophical question is is the necessity to move in academia a good thing in general or a bad thing? Yeah, I mean, like that's the thing. I think when you have to move, which is kind of what's the academic like the nature of I think academic uh, li- 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 uh, like lifestyle has, then I think there's a negative to that. Mm. that uh that you know like uh seemingly within academia you need you know you need to be prepared for for a home level instability from pretty much finishing your phd up until the position of getting uh getting getting a staff position within a university which i guess is sort of like seemingly like where i'm at a crux at now also as well because you know it's during the phd i had that movement but i think there's an expectation that you know i should have more international experience that I should spend a year or two, that I should spend a year or two as a postdoc, maybe in the States, you know, and that would look, mm. someone would, some people would say that would look good for my CV. I don't, I appreciate it, but also at the same time, I, I don't understand why it, it has to be that way. Like what, what, why seemingly in order to be a successful scientist or a successful academic, you have to have a, a, this kind of like degree of home instability. Because if because if you don't have a partner that's supportive and understanding, you're going to be alone, you know. Like and and it, and it's sort of like forcing you to to kind of like uh, not have this kind of like uh, romantic or or home connection in order to ha- in order to em- embark on something which you probably are passionate for, which is what most academics are. Yeah, very passionate about their science. And then, it, as you rightly say, it selects for people who can deal with deal with that, doesn't it? Which is selecting a specific group of people, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Anyway, we could talk about that for hours, and we actually did when, when I was in yeah. Maastricht with you. So um, I won't bore anyone else with the rest of that conversation. But uh, so we met in Maastricht at this unusual conference called the Maastricht Consensus Conference on Thrombosis (MCCT), um, which is a very unusual. Um, conference in many ways uh, you can probably explain what it is and how it worked a bit better than i can i i, I could try i could try <laughs> uh, <laughs> so so how i understand it is um 
is you have like some of these world leading figures uh, within thrombosis who are based here in Maastricht. And they organize this kind of like really low key, I, I guess is the way I would describe it, like very mm. small, intimate conference. Uh, not with the purpose of actually promoting research per se. Actually, it's more so to to really embark on tackling what are the current research questions from the from the perspective of each talk that's delivered needs to be discussed in great detail as to how this niche of thrombosis need, needs to be addressed. And that was quite a quite a remark, remarkable experience because I mean just to, to, to give the outline for anyone who, who is listening in who might be interested in. So, so you have a morning session where you would have, you know, four talks back to back, about half hour. They didn't they didn't really go over time. They were really good with timekeeping. And then straight away we go into discussion rooms. You know, and 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 this is the, the and then we, we really have the uh, have this process of dissecting what was mentioned, you know, as to the, the controversial or the or the, the the more necessary aspects of thrombosis uh, research or care that need to get tackled that need that need addressing, and 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 then, you know, you 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 could sit back as as someone like myself, like a a junior scientist, and just hear these really great thoughts and and discussions like uh coming back and forth with each other and, and it was very variant as well mm. the way in which it, 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 it was delivered it was it was, it was I, I haven't encountered another conference like that from another from another field no and neither it, have i and i think it gives an opportunity for people to speak up and have an opinion i mean just to give people a flavor of what was there we had coagulome and the cns coagulome in the heart Coagulation and inflammation, diseases of the kidney and coagulome, lots of ohms. Uh, coagulome is a critical driver of cardiovascular disease and um, specifically looking at factor 11 and factor 12, which are really interesting. We had bits on the clinical side. We had things on genetics of bleeding disorders and NGS panels, impact of the microbiome on thrombosis, pharmacogenetics, genetics clinical rationale for antagonized antithrombotics, which is my sort of flavor, uh, how to assess hemostasis ex vivo, which is fairly, which was very interesting. And actually I was involved in the session looking at um, uh, extracorporeal circuits and organoids, which we can touch on later because it's sort of you're touching on your area of, of expertise and all sort of rounded off by uh, Steve Watson giving a nice talk on perfect, a perfect antiplatelet agent. So I, I thought it was, it was an excellent, it was an excellent meeting. Um, we got to meet lots of young people. And I think it was really nice to get involvement of the young, the young people like PhD students in chairing those sessions and trying to lead those sessions. So I think well done to the, to the team that have, that have designed, designed the conference and run it. And uh, I'd love to go again, actually. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, at, at first when I got the, you know, you register and you get your PhD discount. And then like a couple of weeks later, you get the email, be like, oh, you're gonna to have to chair this session. And I'm yeah. like, what? <laughs> I think you did a, you did a really good job. Like, really good and job. everyone everyone else in the same email CC just like uh, you know, like uh, you know, there was a couple of days of like emails back and forth, like what on earth do we have to do? What is this gonna be? And yeah. then like, yeah, it, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Yeah, it's good. And it's one of the fun things about doing science is going to these meetings, isn't it? Although my wife accused me of being on holiday for uh, for a week when I came back and actually I explained to her it was a, a 10 hour a day conference and then I had to network in the evening, which is essentially just eating and drinking, but that's fine. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, shall we... <laughs> shall we? Let's move on. So your, your area, well, just tell me what your area's interests are now and then we'll touch on sort of previous research. And I definitely want to talk about vitamin K because it will be of interest yeah. to people listening in 
Yeah, so it's it's quite quite a fun one when you ask me that question because I'm I'm in a I'm in I'm in a very dynamic group under under a mentor uh, who has many different research avenues. I think he has more research avenues than he actually knows he has, <laughs> uh, and so it's been really like so it, it, uh, you know having this kind of like very like I I perceive it as I've had like a very unique uh, PhD experience by being with um, Professor Leon Shergis under his guidance. Uh, so if you ask me right now, what's my research focus? I think the number one thing I'm I'm interested in is how the um, developmental or how development of the human system has a, a knock-on effect in later life as to why we get to certain diseases that we do. So, for example, you know you have your uh, the, the main thing which I'm looking at is our cardiovascular system, the, 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 uh, which is not a singular developmental, uh, not arisen from a singular developmental trajectory. You know, whereas you could say that the liver comes from, you know, the end, of, like you know, you go from pluripotency, so sperm into an egg, and then the, and then the, uh, the cells begin to like specialize, yeah. then they go from pluripotency into the endoderm. And then from the endoderm, it goes into a particular region of the endoderm, and then a liver forms. With the vasculature, the cardiovascular system, you have multiple different trajectories, which define the, uh, which uh, give the uh, developmental spatial cues for the cardiovascular system to develop. And this we hypothesize, and it's hypothesized by by many now. It's beginning to build traction. Uh, is what leads to the different diseases of the vasculature occurring at different regions. So what this has been done, uh, uh, what, what's been very uh, nicely kind of like unraveled and publications coming out, which is helping to lead to better drug treatments, uh, which is work pioneered by the, the group of San, uh, Professor Sanjay Sinha at Cambridge University, is the idea that there's particular populations of vascular cells which have a difference in expression of particular genes compared to that of another part of the vascular system. And if you have mutations or, or what we consider, you know, because that's a, a different thing of what is a mutation, what is not a mutation. Yeah, uh, or, or if you have a, a, what's con a, a traditionally considered as a pathological mutation to a gene which is highly expressed in one of these vascular beds. So for example, to, to like, not be very like amb ambiguous in describing it, you know, something like fibrillin one in Marfan syndrome. This is highly expressed in neural crest smooth muscle cells, which are the smooth muscle cells which populate the arch of the uh, uh, of the aorta. And Marfan and, and Marfan patients get aneurysms. Aortic arch dilation. Yeah, yeah. And this is this has been demonstrated by uh, you know the, the seminal work from um, from the the Sinho group. Where they showed that you know use uh, these smooth muscle cells have a higher expression of the fibrillin, which is probably why aortic arch dilation occurs like this. And then another more work uh, in Marfan, particular with fibrillin with a fibrillin one mutation. Whereas uh, this work has been done, I can't remember the name of the group, but there was a group in the USA who I think a year or so ago published looking at um, lower steets and the TGF beta receptor which is more highly expressed in uh, lateral mesoderm smooth muscle cells, which is that at the, at the root of the aorta, and then they suffer from aortic root dilation. So effectively, the different populations of our smooth muscle cells, which come from, so these are, the smooth muscle cell is the primary constituent of the, of the vascular system that contracts yeah. and relaxes to help uh, blood flow. So having these different developmental origins 
primes the cardiovascular system for disease in different populations in a different way. And that's one thing which that's what, what uh, the focus of my research has been on, but not with regards to uh, congenital aortopathy, but with regards to vascular calcification, uh, which is a, a cardiovascular disease that affects the general population as well as has a congenital phenotype as well. Oh, it yeah. sounds it sounds fascinating. So, um, let's talk more about that then. I, I I just wanted to touch on something you just said, which is Lowy Dietz syndrome, and just to, to explain to people. So, Lowy Dietz syndrome is a is a syndrome that phenotypically looks like Marfan syndrome, but is associated with a TGF beta mutation rather than a fibrillin one. Um, but it essentially looks looks the same. So they get the same same features. Fab fab. So so what are you what are you doing right now then? What's what's going on? Because I want to talk about vitamin K because. Uh, looking at your sort of publications and things that that's that seems to be where things possibly started but i could be wrong um so maybe let's talk about vitamin k first and then we can talk about the current research is that okay yeah 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 for sure for sure for sure you've written a really nice review a year or two ago on this subject and and particularly on the sort of non-canonical effects of vitamin k i.e the things that aren't to do with clotting so classically we know that vitamin k is important for the production of vitamin k dependent clotting factors so we've got seven ten two and uh nine um as well as uh, protein c protein s so very famously warfarin um which is a vitamin k antagonist will give you an anticoagulant effect by preventing the is it gamma carboxylation of those those clotting factors basically making them useful yeah, but we now know and i now know having read your very interesting review twice um that the there's an isoform of is an isoform isn't it a vitamin k called k2 that um has extrahepatic effects particularly to do with calcification and fractures but also in diabetes cancer and ckd so i was hoping we could maybe talk about the first two of those particularly um let's let's talk about calcification so so what what is k2 what why is that important where where do we find it in our diet and why is it important for calcification right so um yeah, that's a, that's, that's, a, that's a good way to start. Uh, so vitamin K comes in many different flavors. So depending on the, the, the length of a, of, of a side chain and the presence of double bonds or not. Uh, and this is, uh, we call this K1, K2, and then you have different analogs of the K2. Uh, K1 is found uh, predominantly in green leafy vegetables, uh, in uh, phylloloquine. So you can find it's uh, heavy, uh, very rich in spinach, broccoli, uh, for example, uh, whereas K2 is, uh, is, is found in, in, in fermented foods uh, mainly, uh, such as cheeses, pickles. Uh, the most rich source of K2 is actually a fermented uh, soya bean uh, called natto, which uh, I haven't had the pleasure of trying, but I've heard it's quite disgusting to, to taste <laughs> for, 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 for those who aren't primed for eating fermented soya beans. Uh, though I would love to try it one day. Uh, <laughs> so, 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 what, what? There's many different ways in order to consider this because I think the, the, to say from the starting point, there is no answer just yet. You know, this is research which is ongoing, and I don't want to. I don't want a a message from the the review uh, for the reviews or from this podcast to, to leave as we need to buy vitamin K supplements or we need to increase up, you know, we need to, uh, we need to um, make drastic changes to the way in which we live our lives. I think vitamin K status is something which we need to be aware of. 
uh, consistently aware of uh, as as one of the dietary um, uh, one of the dietary uh, necessities in our in our life. So at, at, at birth, we 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 are clinically uh, considered subclinically deficient, uh, which is why we then deliver an intramuscular uh, injection of siliquinone in order to prevent uh, vitamin K dependent bleeding uh, in newborns. Uh, then then for for some reason. We're, we're, we're kind of good on the, K, the vitamin K front, it's suggested. So after this kind of like boost, we're good. You know, we just have a normal lifestyle, keep within your RDI, eat your five, five a day, and, you, and you'll be okay with that. Which, for the most part, I very much agree with. But what seems to be coming out from look, when you go back and look at pathological cohorts, so individuals with cardiovascular disease, a very heavy calcification burden, people with chronic kidney disease, late stages, five, five dialysis. What's, when we measure particular vitamin K-dependent proteins in these patients, the activity of these proteins are much lower than, than how they should be. So this is suggestive as to a vitamin K deficiency within these pathological within within these pathologies and within these individuals. Mm -hmm. And whether it's a cause or effect is our question. It's, it's, I think, really like our research question. And when you come, when, you know, and just to, to bring it back a little bit more, if you come to something like warfarin, we know that if you give warfarin to an individual for a longer period of time, this will increase the development of vascular calcification within this individual because you're targeting all vitamin K dependent proteins as opposed to specifically the coagulative ones, which is where the DOAX come into effect as a very valuable. Uh, research uh, re research line and a, a very necessary uh, development that humanity needs to make in order to specifically target the, uh, the hematopoietic system and not all vitamin K uh, yeah. dependent proteins. Because within the vasculature, you have a protein, uh, the matrix GLA protein, uh, which is also, you know, this is in the, in the smooth muscle cells, in the vasculature, as well as other, uh, other particular, uh, how to put it, like fibroblast-like cells. And this is, a, this is carboxylated by the vitamin K, gamma carboxylase. And if you give warfarin to, to this, then you will not have your carboxylated phenotype. This carboxylated, carboxylated cell, you'll have it in its uncarboxylated form. And then in mouse models, in human studies, in in vitro models, in, our, in, our, in the new stem cell systems, which I've been developing and working on, we see always that vitamin K antagonism promotes vascular calcification. So by preventing this, this physiological pathway with vitamin K antagonism, we're having this secondary effect, or, 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 or maybe not secondary effect, this, like, uh, you know, this secondary consequence, which is a primary effect on the vasculature, which is causing cardiovascular disease. So it's like, you know, you're trying to put out a, put out a fire and just putting, uh, 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 trying to put out, put out a fire but then uh, right, right next to it, actually, there's a, there's a blowtorch, you know, and you're just constantly putting out the, the fire, but then the blowtorch is just still going, you know, like it's what, that's one, one, one way to look at it, I guess. This, so. this has some very interesting clinical relevance, not only just what you've said, but in CKD, so in chronic kidney disease. So if you've got a low EGFR, um, often the DOACs, the DOACs are supposed to be contraindicated because a lot of them are renally excreted. So if you've got atrial fibrillation and um, chronic kidney disease, for example, you're on dialysis or you've got end-stage renal failure, not on dialysis, um, the treatment for AF would be warfarin. 
Now, if you look at most of the trials, all the trials exclude, all the trials certainly with DIRACs exclude these patients, which is one of the reasons we don't use them. But looking at sort of the observational data and very reasonable observational data, there seems to be absolutely no survival benefit for warfarin at all. In fact, there seems to be no survival benefit for any treatment for AF at all, apart from possibly a pick spanner at the higher dose of five milligrams BD. And, and clearly in, in CKD, you've got a, a, a process where there's accelerated vascular calcification as well. So adding warfarin to that obviously can fuel the fire. So clearly, you know, I'm passionate about things that we do in medicine that have unintended consequences. And I think warfarin and CKD is an absolute no-no. Um, actually, in our hospital in, in Stoke, we've we've been starting putting these patients on a PICSPAN 5BD because that seems, to, certainly the ones we've done on dialysis, because that seems to be the best evidence-based practice. But it requires careful counselling of these patients. You know, you come, they come to a clinic and, and, have, and have careful counselling with a consultant in haematology. Um, to really decide what what the risks and the benefits are to that to that individual person because it's not cut and dry it's not like any other person where you've got AF and you've got a high enough Chad's VASC score it's worth putting you on a DOAC these people are very very different with a shortened life expectancy as well so um, this this work definitely has that direct clinical relevance doesn't it okay and and people on warfarin we also think um, are a higher risk of osteoporosis as well is that right uh, as I understand it, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you've done some work on this in this review, looking at, at the role of uh, vitamin K in, in in bone. And actually, one of your research papers is on this subject as well, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yes, quite. So uh, my research paper was on a on on a stem cell model, uh, wherein we're looking at uh, developing a, a more mature bone phenotype. Uh, and uh, by by simply simply uh, by by um, by by supplementing then the, the differentiation medium with uh, menaquinone seven, which is one of the K two uh, vitamin K two analogs, uh, we could we promote where we could see certain degree of promote, promoting of uh, bone health uh, and uh, bone formation. So it's okay. promoted uh, pr promoted uh, collagen formation, it decreased uh, reactive oxygen species. And had some uh, slight changes in the gene expression profile, suggesting as to being a more mature bone phenotype. What's Whether the goal? The, yeah. So. so, what's the goal of that research to develop a, a some sort of in vitro model? Yes. Yeah, so, so, to to uh, see if uh, vitamin uh, uh, activating the vitamin K pathway um, would promote bone formation in 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 the stem cell model compared to. The control of having it not promoted and what, yeah. what would that model be used for uh so th th this model like so this is a in vitro cell model and uh this is very much like opening the door for for the next steps is to look into using uh uh you, you, well yeah, like two, i'll say two two next steps is further de de delineating the mechanism by which uh the, the k2 is active but also it would be very interesting uh, for, uh, for us we're to uh, to look into developing um, uh, effectively like uh, 3D scaffolds with K2 in order to see if we can get a more mature phenotype in a 3D system. That's the next step to go uh, to see because uh, that, that that can have um, a positive effect on tissue engineering and developments. Okay, so would that be used for um, testing new drugs, other sort of in vitro work, or, or potentially for um, bone grafts? Or yeah, so 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 right now this like uh, drug drug screening is is our is where we are applying it. 
uh, as well as nutraceutical screening as well to see what other other antioxidants because you know I I really uh, you know like I, I'm I, I got introduced to kind of the nutraceutical antioxidant field via vitamin K but you know I don't want to I definitely don't want to say that this is your only antioxidant which can have these effects okay. you know by having uh, by having a a, a well sustained physiological niche you can promote bone formation in a number of different ways vitamin k2 is is, is one of these uh one of the goals for sure is to uh, use it in order to develop like uh, allergenic grafts with the help develop uh, develop grafts i believe it can be helpful in the in the pre-implantation phase but also i wonder if um uh, if like a general awareness as to vitamin k status uh, can 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 be applied with regards to uh, nutraceutical guidelines uh, when it comes to like patient care. Because uh, like one one thing, for example, which is you know it's it's very hard to actually categorically say that this nutritional like uh, this nutritional entity is going to be good for for bone health or not. Because what you can do is you can go into a nursing you know this is published studies you know you go into a nursing home where everyone's kind of like a bit frail and a bit uh, a bit weak on their knees, you give half of them vitamin K, half of them you give placebo, and they all fall down the same rate. And then you say, okay, oh, nothing happened to the vitamin K. But then you go to somewhere like Japan, where you have regions which have a natto-rich diet or natto or, 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 or not. And then in those, nation, in, in those regions where, which are natto-rich, you have a lower decrease in full rate in the elderly, as well as a, a higher bone mineral density amongst these populations purely suggestive purely suggestive you know it's like but how do you appreciate this and, and and really understand the mechanisms and that's kind of like one of the foundations behind this study and kind of like where, where where it's where why it was conceptualized the first publication is out there and where we're looking to take it right? okay all right let's let's move on and talk about this interesting vascular calcification then so um let's just talk about you, your current work and as i understand using uh well you, you tell me you tell me what the workflow is and exactly what you're doing and then we can talk about what you're finding yeah for sure uh so what i use is i use uh induced pluripotent stem cells or iPSCs, and i generate different populations of smooth muscle cells so as we mentioned earlier, that the smooth uh, that the the vasculature kind of comes together from various embryonic origins. So using these pluripotent stem cells, we we make uh, particular embryonic origins, and then from there, with these embryonic origins, we make smooth muscle cells. Because you know, with stem cells, in, as a research tool, you go from an undifferentiated cell, and you can make your cell type of interest for for your research. And so doing that with, with um, uh, the iPSCs and smooth muscle cells, we make smooth muscle cells, which are effectively in, in, like a model for that of the aortic root, the aortic arch, and the descending aorta. And then with these cells, I'm putting them into, uh, into our disease in a dish modeling. So I'm uh, giving them vascular calcification or not, and looking at the differences between the populations, uh, in calcification as well as in uh, like uh, in biochemical mechanism of calcification so what tells you that those smooth muscle cells are actually what you think they are uh as in uh our smooth muscle cells yeah yeah because you're obviously making okay, you're yeah, making so them, you're making them in the lab and they're not from a real person so what how do you know yeah, that yeah. your aortic arch cell is actually what you think it is 
Yeah, so we have uh, we we have a panel of uh, for of of proteins which these cells need to be expressing in order to uh, say that they are um, smooth muscle cells. Uh, so we have four different proteins which are highly expressed in uh, or should be highly expressed in, in vascular smooth muscle cells. That's uh, alpha smooth muscle actin, asthma, calponin, CNN one. Uh, smooth muscle, uh, smooth muscle protein, uh, the 22 alpha, SM22, and phosphorylated myosin light chain, PMLC. So this is, uh, so, so we do this with our IPSC differentiations, uh, but actually why we do it, like why we do it like this in our lab is, so I introduced the IPSC technology into, into our, our department. And, uh, and brought over this protocol from Cambridge. It was developed by the team of Professor Sanjay Sinha. And before we had the stem cell research, we would get surgical biopsies and it would take, and then we would get a, an outgrowth of cells from them and then we would characterize them with these, with these uh, smooth muscle cell proteins. Okay. Um, and then effectively I took that and put that with the iPSC smooth muscle cells. And yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's a nice way of telling that you have a, made good cells from your stem cells okay and there's clearly some advantages to this over your sort of mouse models and and whatnot isn't there i know you you've quite you've got quite, quite opinionated about what mouse models can and can't do and this is a, a good example of of why mouse models probably aren't suitable for certain things like this so i don't even want to expand on that a little yeah for sure i mean uh, i'm not too sure with with what what degree it's okay to uh, to talk about animal experimentation here like well i think it's a you um, know it's it's a reality of of science but often i feel like some science doesn't necessarily need the mice and actually you're not you're not sure. working with mice you've got a you've got a better model probably you know mice aren't humans we diverged in evolution many many millions of years ago um we're very yeah. different and just because something works on yeah. a mouse, mouse doesn't mean it's going to work in a human and vice versa yeah for sure okay great so if, if i can talk openly and honestly uh, about about it so in order to get vascular smooth muscle cells from mice you need to kill i think actually i think the people who do the research prefer the term sacrifice uh but you need to kill maybe uh eight mice and then put all of their aortas together in order to get a viable amount of cells to conduct some experiments. Uh, so wow. straight away, compared to the model which I'm using, straight away, uh, so it's not a human. I'm, I'm not interested in veterinary medicine. Uh, <laughs> so I prefer to work with uh, human, human samples if possible. You'd think uh, that mice should have an extremely good life expectancy with what with all the medical research. You mean they should they should should never die from cancer, should they? I mean, there's so many therapies. I would mouse. Say, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> there's so much veterinary research going on. It's amazing. No, 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 no disrespect. It, 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 there is necessary work happening in, in in animal models, of course, but just like to 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 kind of like uh, why I why I prefer my work and why I don't need my mouse yeah. is because you know you need you use so many mice. Uh, for so for for one set of experiments, uh, for one when you're doing that as well, not only do, is it not human, but also you have the genetic variability of your eight different mice and their cells within your experiment. So I think it's more limited like that. And then also uh, the last, you know, not to go on too much, but also the last point is I want to look at the different parts of the vasculature. You know, so I want to see what's happening at the, in in the in the aorta when it's right next to the heart. 
when it's at the root, you know, about to like, you know, uh, we're, we're about to branch off to the head, or if it's coming down to uh, down uh, down to the sending aorta to the rest of your organs. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to look at these distinct processes. And when you're, you know, w- w- with the, pu- the pooling of ho- whole aortas, you do not do that. You miss that completely. So, so with your in vitro asset, is it possible? Is it possible to make smooth muscle cells that are very subtly different? You know, you're saying just at the just at the start of the aorta versus a couple of centimeters up. Uh, is is it generally different? Uh, in in reality, are those muscle cells different? And and in vitro, can you actually make them to be different? So. The, the reality, like if, so if we think about it, like physiologically speaking, you know, right at the root of the aorta, these smooth, smooth muscle cells or what or whatever you want to call them, this, the cells which are there are experiencing a great degree of shear stress and forces by the heart, constantly pumping, you know, yeah. however many times a minute, you know, just that rest, you know, let alone on exertion of physical activity. The arch has a different mechanism that's going on as well. When you come over to the arch a bit more, it's it's more of a response to that latent latent uh, latent pressure, as well as this kind of like as well as experiencing this uh, this shear flow of the blood that's coming over from it, you know, which is different then from the descending aorta, which is kind of more uh, transiently helping the blood flow. Yeah, and uh, and actually, like I think uh, if I remember. Correctly, on talking to uh, talking to uh, ca- cardiologists, I think they refer to different vessels as elastic or muscular, you know, which is you know, w- which I think is incredibly important to note. But then in in the field of research, because we have limited tools and you know, and you can only address questions one at a time, we just say, okay, it's the smooth muscle cell, it's the vasculature, you know. But then mm. already straight away, there's this distinct physiological difference between them. Uh, so in terms of the, um, the proteins to characterize them, one thing which I really appreciate about the model is that all of them have all of the proteins. Yeah? So there's actually, there's no difference between them just by that. Morphology, kind of, maybe some difference. Uh, but now what, one thing I've been getting into is, um, is the transcriptomics and the deep, deep RNA sequencing of this, and I've been doing that analysis. And, and there, there, are, there are differences in this model which if I can translate to human samples could be very, very powerful, like could, could really increase the power of this tool. Okay. Like, uh. And then what do you do with these? Cause you're interested in calcification. What do you do to assess calcification, the role of these cells in calcification? Yeah. So we have our ability of, uh, of disease modeling and uh, effectively we, 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 we put them into the disease model or control which is, uh, you know, to, to put it uh, like shortly, it's, a, it, it, it's an elevated uh, calcification condition. So we're increasing in the, in the cell culture medium, the amount of calcium that's there. And this, induce, and, this, and this causes deposition of calcium material into the extracellular matrix of these cells. And so that's, uh, that's the disease modeling. And so what I've done is quite happy to find that, that the cells will calcify because they are stem cells so maybe they are uh, people consider them uh, potentially immature so even within our immature smooth muscle cells we can induce a disease phenotype mm-hmm. and then i've uh, and then i'm looking at the differences between the populations uh, on the speed at which they can calcify and what proteins have been activated when they calcify okay. and the next steps are to, to look at you know uh, what's the effect if, there, if there's a differential effect of let's say warfarin on these different populations or if BOAX will have no po- no effect on the populations uh, with regards to calcification 
not only calcification, also reactive oxygen species, which comes back to the vitamin K, which is able to reduce reactive oxygen species. And then actually we know, sorry, I'm just not to ramble too much, but also no, what, what we know is actually with regards to, to, to warfarin, it inhibits, uh, uh, it, it directly binds to, uh, to an enzyme in order to inhibit the vitamin K pathway. And vitamin K2 has a competitive binding effect for that. So actually, actually, if you're on warfarin, if you're taking warfarin, or if you know someone who is, they should not be taking K2 supplementation without consultation of their doctor, because this could stop that drug from working. And so this is kind of like, I hope I'm very, I hope I'm somewhat coherently painting like a broad picture on how I'm using kind of like basic biochemistry with stem cell model in order to answer a clinically relevant question. Mm. Okay. That's, uh, yeah. So the, the long-term goal really is to use this model to test drugs, I guess. And uh, if you've got any particular disease focuses or more sort of generally cardiovascular disease? Yeah, so calcification affects many, many different individuals uh, in, and different disease phenotypes in different ways. Um, with regards to, to to the focus, like I'm, I'm really focusing on building the model in order to fulfill itself to the best of its potential. So, you know, the, 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 the model was developed by, by, by one of my, my mentors in, in Cambridge, Professor Sanjay Sinner, and I'm applying it to calcification. And I'm, I think I'm the first person to do that within, like, uh, uh, within kind of like his, his, his scope of, uh, uh, like w within his scope. And so we're connecting Maastricht and Cambridge in that way. Uh, I'm looking to really develop the model for for wider applications so maybe you've meant uh, maybe you, you you saw we we've published with primary smooth muscle cells that if you have the serum or plasma from different patients uh, or different individuals who then become patients then you can have a difference in calcification readout on the cells that is prognostic of that calcification status of that individual at a time okay i think pluripotent stem cells one of the applications which i think is maybe beyond drug discovery is actually a high throughput generation of iPSC smooth muscle cells with patient cohort samples in order to look at calcification development of that, which is suggestive as to someone who, who is in a calcification, uh, who is more prone to calcification and cardiovascular disease rather than someone who isn't. And to use it, we're looking to apply it to a broad, broader spectrum of disease using iPSC smooth muscle cells. Because then with the, with the stem cells, you have this ability to kind of just expand infinitely. And so in terms of when I'm thinking kind of like outside of my like academic, like golden cage, you know, to actually like real world application, we're talking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm developing like or, 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 or working on uh, uh, building systems that can be GMP compliant for the production of these iPSCs and muscle cells. So then we can really look at developing a, uh, uh, a clinically validated tool. I'm also working within the Department of Biochemistry with other, uh, with other individuals to see what, what other readouts can we get mechanistically from putting different patient serums on the smooth muscle cells. Okay. It's fascinating stuff. I really wish you well in all your endeavours. I think it's a fantastic idea. Um, I think it's got a lot of scope to be really helpful. I mean, particularly <clears throat> looking at um whether you can use these uh, as a readout for calcification in patients because currently we use imaging things like ct scan to, to define the amount of calcification but whether that's 
truly relevant uh, it's difficult to know which patients you know um will benefit the most from interventions so you know a, a, an actually functional a functional assay where you you measure the calcification in real time um, and see how susceptible these patients are to, to bad things going on is probably a good thing and and clearly it will need some uh further testing and and many many years of further work but it's definitely a hope um and i think um you're doing doing a great job Chengis. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And if, and if I could just uh, just just say to that, just to like when you're looking at like a CT or an MRI, you're only seeing late stage macro calcification. That's where our technology is at. So the moment calcification starts, we do not see it. It's mm -hmm. only once you have effectively a good size millimeter, centimeter of bone-like material obstructing vessel function, then we can see it and we can begin to talk about interventions, which is. I think uh, it, it, something which, uh, which 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 is ongoing. And, yeah. 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 Thank thank you for your well wishes as well in the in the endeavour. Oh, pleasure. Well, um, I'll leave it there. Um, if you're back in the UK in Birmingham, please please find me and uh, we'll have a beer. That'd be nice. And similarly, I I've told the wife how beautiful Maastricht is, so we need to come. But if you can deal with uh, meeting up with me and two screaming children, then uh, let's do it. Yeah, I'll, I'll try mentally prepare myself now. For <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Let's, yeah, let's like, leave thank it. You, thank you very much for uh, for having me today, like and then for the chat. Like, much appreciated. Pleasure. Let's leave it there. All right, take care. Thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Jenks is a great guy and clearly going places. I put some links to some interesting reading in the chat, including the review on vitamin K, which is a really nice read and gives a really good summary of uh, the roles of vitamin K beyond coagulation. All right, stay tuned and I'll see you soon. Bye. Don't just read the guidelines. It's for education and entertainment only and should not be taken as medical advice. I certainly cannot guarantee the factual accuracy of any of the content, but if you do have any constructive criticism, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. If you like the show, please take the time to write a review on iTunes, Google, or wherever else you listen. It will really help others find the podcast. See you soon. about like an hour ago i was a bit like oh shit i don't know what to say like i felt like also, almost like i might freeze up but i think i've been rambling no, quite a bit ha so, having so, so. having having met you i wasn't worried you'd be one of those people who wouldn't have anything to say so. <laughs> <laughs>